I think you get here and you pretty much figure out you like this or you don't. I say I'm a DC mutant. I've thought about changing jobs. I've looked at jobs in other cities and I'm like, you know what? I love my policy junk. I just love it. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to Approved Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. We're broadcasting today from Equinox, which is at 818 Connecticut Northwest, literally one block across Lafayette Square from the White House. And for 20 years, it has been the brainchild of one of the power couples in D the D.C. restaurant scene, Chef Todd Gray and Ellen Kessoff Gray. Their approach to mid-Atlantic regional food and what they call sustainable organic root-to-stem offerings has put them on perennial lists such as DC 100 Best and the Washington Post Top 50 Best Restaurants. Uh, they were once considered the best in DC by Town and Country Magazine and have been in other great publications such as Condé Nast, Bon Appetit, and Gourmet. So if you're ever in the vicinity of the White House, I highly recommend coming by here for a great meal. And if you don't have time for lunch or dinner, you have to at least come check out their happy hour. Every day of the week, five to seven, they offer great items such as risotto fritters, crispy eggplant chips, truffled mac and cheese, and all wine glasses are half price. There's really no excuse not to come by if you're in the White House vicinity. And the reason we're here today is my guest bird, Shane Twos, used to be a regular here, and probably still is. Very well known when we walked in the door. Shane, it's great to see you. Cheers and welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. Shane is currently president of Logan Circle Strategies, but is the embodiment of the old adage that this town thrives on very full resumes. Uh, she, at the same time of running her own firm, has been a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute for the past five years. She's been a consultant in a couple of public affairs, government relations firms, but she really made her mark as 11 years vice president, global public policy and government relations for VeriSign, which put her in charge of not only being the face and voice of VeriSign, here in Washington, but on the international platform as well, where she was running the strategic planning and the daily management of the government relations. But like most people here in town, she came from very humble beginnings, and I will let her get into that in just a bit. But Shane, let me start by asking you, tell us a bit about Logan Circle Strategies and what you do for your clients there. Sure. So my, my main focus is on internet governance, and that brings me into um, something called the Internet Corporation on Assigned Names and Numbers, which is the DNS system that's the backbone of the internet. Uh, the Internet Governance Forum, which was created under the Bush administration as sort of a third way to get around dealing with the International Telecommunications Union and, uh, and standards bodies. I realize that's gibberish to a lot of people, but uh, in Washington, 
uh, protocols, uh, understanding how the process works and acronyms and vocabulary kind of run the day. And I've spent 11 years mastering all of that in the area of how the internet runs and understanding how policies work on both the state, federal, and international uh, process. And I, so for a lot of my clients, I just keep them informed as to what's going on in, in multiple tiers of internet process uh, uh, policy, and then tell them when they need to act on something. And occasionally, um, I, you know, we all stop lobbying during the, the Obama administration. We spent a lot of time advising. I've noticed that, uh, that many of the references I've seen to Logan Circle Strategies, you don't just do pure advocacy. You do a lot of client advising, but some of the, the key tools I've noticed that you're particularly engaged in is establishing public policy forums yes. for your clients, uh, using, encouraging, coaching them with social media tactics, and education campaigns. Tell me a bit about how you utilize those tools on a daily basis. So in the tech space, they call it eating your own dog food, which yeah. is you need to understand uh, what's, how something works thoroughly. So I have some friends that are very scared for their own privacy reasons of getting on the social media. I love the Twitter. The Twitter, I get, it's the first thing I get on first thing in the morning. I have certain groups that I watch on Facebook and Instagram. And what's happening now with uh, instant messaging formats is you know who to capture when and where, especially when you have a, a global presence. I have friends in Asia, Australia, uh, Europe, and they're all in different time frames. But I also know who do I am on Instagram, who do I am on Twitter. There's actually several government people that I can get on certain platforms that won't necessarily respond on email. To me, I was just uh, outside the country. The last thing I would touch in my process would be my email. I would go through my WhatsApp. I would go through a bunch of other things. Email is, to me, sort of a broken format. I have, I'm have i down to 14,000 unopened emails. Oh I was at God. 20 when I left two oh. weeks ago. Yeah. Um, but it's, So it's, it's learning and, and figuring all that out, which is one way to say that people need to figure out how to communicate with each other. Sure. And that's what I spend a lot of time explaining to my clients is just keeping people informed as of what you're doing. People are busy, especially government officials. I spend a lot of time in front of the Department of Commerce and the Federal Trade Commission, you need to keep them informed as to what you're concerned about, what your company is doing about those concerns. I also spend a lot of time in cybersecurity as well as internet governance. So keeping the the policymakers informed as to what's on the horizon, they appreciate that because they're used to having issues right in front of their face that they have to deal with and understanding yeah. that companies are looking 5, 10, 15 years ahead and looking at the long tail of how to uh, manage a problem. Identity management, privacy, data, data governance, things like that is what I spend a lot of my waking hours on. Have you seen a big increase in data privacy concerns for your clients? Yes. Um, on Privacy is a huge issue right now. There's a lot of people driving towards the federal uh, privacy, what I would call a data protection law. Uh, to me, data is what companies understand. They understand how long they should keep it, how when they should delete it, uh, what is available, what people, uh, you know, and I call the, when you check the box on the terms of use, that's like the mattress tag of the internet. It's like, you know, you're not supposed to ever take the mattress tag off. You don't know why, but you don't do it. And so you <laughs> click the box because you want what's on the other side of that wall. Right. Privacy is a feeling. Privacy is an emotion. It's okay to have those feelings and emotions, but it's very hard to legislate on those emotions. So we need to really be focusing on data and data collection and data creation and, and how we maintain and delete the data. So I'm not going to ask you to name anyone specifically, but what's the type of client that would come for you? 
use your services? Um, so they're all very, pretty much tech-oriented. Occasionally I get one out of that scope, but there are, um, a lot of them are not based in Washington, and they want sort of a Sherpa. They need somebody that will help them say, and, you know, I don't, I have a lot of skin in the game, but I'll also say to them, you know what, you don't need full-time representation on this. Right. Like, the, the first thing they'll think is I need to hire a lobbyist. And I'm like, lobbyists are great people. I used to be one. I sometimes act like one. But what they need to do is understand when and where to step into the process. And a lot of times they're gun-shy to even just go talk. I mean, these are you pay these people's salaries, right? You know, go talk to NIST. Go, you know, on, on cybersecurity, they did a great job on the on the cybersecurity platform. So I had some clients that I helped get into those workshops around that. Same thing around privacy. And it's, it's just a matter of feeling a comfort level of going in. And a lot of these people have extreme expertise that they don't understand that the average policymaker has no idea what border gateway protocols are. Well, sure. So, um, you know, going in, getting a comfort zone with the staff around that. And eventually, you know, years ago when I first started at VeriSign and nobody, I mean, not that a lot of people still know what domain name addressings are, is, but I would go, here's my card, let me know. And about two years later, somebody called me and be like, you're that girl that came in and talked about the internet. Now I need to know something. So it, it worked out eventually. Well, I'm glad you brought up VeriSign because before you spent your 11 years at VeriSign, you actually ran government relations for the Distilled Spirits yes. Council of the United Still States. Still in my heart. You, you my have, favorite well, which place. Which is very consistent with the theme of 80 politics, let's admit. <laughs> but you have to tell me about how you made that transition and how did you get started? started down this path of becoming the internet queen in DC. <laughs> uh, so I, I loved working at Discus, still very much friends with everyone there and, and, and with the companies. And a lot of what we did was work around, thanks to the 21st Amendment, a lot of this, the um, work that they do is in the states and not at the federal level. So um, that was interesting because I spent a lot of time learning about the uh, the interstate uh um, the interstate commerce clause, and um, and how you manage around state and local versus federal laws. And international wasn't my focus at Discus, it, and, and for the companies we had other people that do that. So when the internet came around, it was really interesting because the zeros and ones don't see boundaries. Right. And it was really interesting to take that concept of the interstate commerce clause and then blow it out and say, okay, at the time, a, one of the huge issues was with Yahoo and uh, Nazi paraphernalia. And we were trying to explain to them that we really couldn't tell what was in France and what mm -hmm. wasn't. It's not completely true, and eventually they figured out that we could tell them, but it was an expensive answer at that point in time. There are ways that the um, the people can nationalize the internet, especially I was just in Algeria. They run the core infrastructure of their internet, and that is very true of most countries. Yeah. China completely runs the you know infrastructure, and it's one of those hard stops I get to when I when I started at the American Enterprise Institute. We had a global internet strategies program they brought me on for, and I've stayed there since. Um, was explaining like, well, they said we should we should not. Give them the internet unless they're going to do it free and unfettered and i'm like you know what what's freedom to us is a challenge for them and and we're still weaving through that you know kind of threading right. the needle around that i can't fault certain countries for deciding that there's certain things they they don't believe in that they feel like the internet's not their friend you also have the case of um, just recently being in africa there's certain african countries that are really embracing the idea of e-commerce and cryptocurrency per se or like mm -hmm. using venmo or some some ilk of that because they don't have a very strong banking system in africa and to the sense that they also kind of leapfrogged over wire wireline right. and they went straight to wireless so that is been very a huge uptake in kenya um some of in Nigeria, definitely in South America, and then you, or sorry, South Africa, and then you get to some place like um, Algeria, and they they just they still do everything in cash because it's a way of having control over the system. It's very 1950s, uh -huh. so you're seeing a lot of disparity in that process, and you're seeing the haves still being extreme haves, and the have-nots don't even know what they don't have. 
So this topic of the transparency of internet boundaries, many people may not realize or maybe have forgotten that this whole model of registering domain names was pretty much the purview of the United States. Yes. Until there was a, a movement away from that, more assignment of responsibilities to the international body. You must have been a Verisign during that transition. Y yes. So uh, Verisign it was originally a cybersecurity company out of California that bought Network Solutions, which was a Virginia-based company. Mm. So uh, Network Solutions actually was originally an 8A, and it was a project that came out of DARPA that got moved over to the National Science Foundation. And this will, our, your audience will appreciate this, is that the NSF didn't want to use use their appropriated funds to help citizens get domain names because that was a, like a losing proposition for them. Oh. So they figured out how to create a contracting process around that and Network Solutions through an 8A, you know, figured it out. And they bundled at the time the registry and the registrar elements, which were the registration of the name and then the processing of the connecting the name every day. Okay. And it was about $36 a year because they did them, I think, in three-year increments. So it's very interesting because I know almost everybody that was in that space. One of the cool things about working on the internet is I've taken the time to meet the people that made these decisions. And they almost all say they were total tip of the hat, you know, made it up. Like, mm -hmm. we, But it was logical. Like, they went with just logical, common sense ways to do this. I mean, I talked to my friends in England and they say the same thing. It's like, well, we, we weren't sure about A or B and A made more sense, so that won. And now, you know, people try to go back and yeah, Some fit. would say that's a lost art these days. Yes, you know, and they try to, like, people try to fit policy process onto it and you're like it just wasn't there it was just these guys and women having common sense around it yeah. and so that was um, originally what happened when I actually interviewed at Verisign they were being told that they should sell one half of the company so I expected to come in thinking we were going to have either the registry or the registrar and then the then CEO Stratton Sklavos decided he wanted to keep both so for about four months we tried to keep both and then that was very clear that the multi-stakeholder policy that was created uh -huh. in ICANN didn't want that so we ended up selling the bulk of network solutions eventually selling all of network solutions which is now a property of web.com. So was Verisign through Network Solutions then a federal contractor as well as a, a really an internet uh, root system? It was originally sort of the offshoot of that and then um, actually SAIC yeah. was the one that took it from original network solutions that they purchased it and spun it out and then Verisign purchased from there. I was in the super heydays of the dot-com boom. Yeah. So everybody yeah. made and lost a lot of money. Uh, the, the numbers were like silly numbers, you know, when you, you look back on it. So I really was the first dot-com lobbyist. You know, I kind of came in yeah. and explained these things that why did that you need this certain protocol? But the, also even like the whole, the dot system and the registry, I would say registries and registrars were because engineers got to name things. Yes. Marketing people would not come up no. with those phrases. Exactly. It must have been uh, somewhat of a unique challenge, having come from that trade association world and the distilled spirits realm into this burgeoning economy that's gone through a big bust. You had the bubble burst in the late, mid to late 90s, and then this resurgence through e-commerce marketing in the early 2000s. And yet you have to deal with the federal government both as a customer and a client. So uh, Verisign was in a unique position because originally they had Comnet and Org when I first came in, and we spun Org off to a with a five million dollar goodbye check um, to a group called now um, let's it's a public interest registry that was created. It was an offshoot of the Internet Society. It still is, and um, that that's worked out great. But it was a bit of a we knew that Com and Net were the Com especially and Net was the next layer of the Internet were really where all the money was. So, so we were willing to give on org. Uh, but we did have a contract with the Department of Commerce. So a lot of what I did was, and they still do, they still have one piece of that that the Department of Commerce uh, runs. In the middle of that, at one point, we were not happy with the way that um, this internet corporation assigned names and numbers. ICANN was 
managing or not managing the policy process and we wanted to create something called the policy development process so we would have similar to a regulatory process okay. uh, we fought about that they didn't agree we sued them uh, through you know we kind of sued for peace by handing out money to a bunch of people all went well we got the contract back we got to give price increases of seven percent four out of you know five years <laughs> so all, all, all for a couple of years went, went pretty well there but my key thing was making sure that the Department of Commerce felt very informed as to what we were doing one of the key things was that Verisign still to this day has the most stellar engineering team that I have ever met and making giving them access at the government level. So they felt very safe that it was sort of an old adage is like you never lose out by going with Big Blue, IBM or, yeah. you know, then the Microsoft days. Right. You never are going to lose by putting your money on these extremely excellent engineers over at Verisign. What was your biggest challenge what's the thing you had to learn the quickest when you made that transition to well, I think you know people misunderstand in Washington that we're all I would say we're all type A we were all the head of student council so that's not going to be your criteria to get in like you know you're not yeah. super special that way yeah. but we're all smart I mean smart in different ways and that you know absorb like sponges and so I've always said you go through phases and this happened I worked on the Hillary Healthcare back in the day on the hill is we spent every day learning every bill there was and then it was like an annuity for like years after that I knew more about healthcare than I ever wanted to do. Sure. And actually, when I went to go work for the Distilled Spirits Council, there was one specific healthcare lobby you told, lobbyist who told me if I went to go work for the liquor guys, that I would never work healthcare again. And I said, Promise? <laughs> <laughs> that cannot be true. Uh, no, and I said, I'd be fine with that. Because yeah. um, it's not my space, but my friends that do healthcare, you know, it's an annuity. They, they, those keep going. Uh, so that is, you know, it was learning how the network operations run, spending a ton of time with the engineers, understanding, you know, the network of networks, and then just yeah. committing it to memory. So not only the the structure, but I'm sure the lingo was all. Oh yeah, and so. there's a you know the, the internet actually is run on RFPs. It's not actually contracts, which sort of surprises yeah. people. It's um it's not standard based. It is on the internet in IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, puts best current efforts forward, and that's for a reason because technology is constantly changing. Sure. So if you put a standard in place, the it's hard to change a standard. It's like it's hard to change a regulation once you cement it. Exactly. With an RFP, that means that you have you know Bill could have the current standard, and then we build to that, and then somebody says, hey, Randy came out with a better standard, and so then we now plus up to that but you don't have to go through the rigmarole of breaking and you know like going through the regulatory process again you just automatically adopt and people yeah. migrate towards the next process this is peter and this is tom we want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast tom and i met in college became best friends and then teachers almost 20 years ago Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. You obviously build up this great network, this great expertise. You're probably one of the few that could really walk the walk and talk the talk when it comes to the internet infrastructure and the policy realm around that. So you, you translate that into becoming a consultant for others. And I noticed in one of your stops for four years, you were at Verge, which is a big public affairs, media, some GR, um, focused branding and crisis management, right? Mm -hmm. Focused in that 
space. Yep. Right. I noticed, uh, you know, on their website, a, a great phrase that I found interesting given your career track to getting to them. They list that they are strategic communications and an advocacy firm guiding industry leaders and upstarts through markets upended by new tech and business models. It seems like that might have been a bit of a new adventure for you. Uh, yeah. Because that's, that's disruption, and yet you had just spent 11 years working in one of the, the keystones. But at the, the same time, what uh, we were doing with the domain name system was very much cutting edge, and a lot of the people candidly that worked at Verge came from VeriSign. So they were um, okay. former PR people, um, you know, people that had been in that space, as well as um, one of the uh, primary people who had worked at AOL and Cisco. So there was a lot of understanding about, you know, the need to go, you know, if you want to do a startup, you need to understand what the big dogs want to keep in that space. And then where do you find the delta that makes being a startup more efficient and nimble than the guys that have been doing this for a while, like the old hardware guys. And um, they they were, I love, I love those guys. They're brilliant. Um, They're very fun to work with. They're very um, kind of thought provoking. And it's, it's a bit of a bridge to bring Silicon Valley, you know, for a long time, we didn't have anybody like, you know, to tell Google, like kind of not on the door and then hired everybody and now we have facebook hiring a ton of people yeah. and we see that you know twitter's never kind of gotten there they have colin apparently he's amazing and nobody we don't we only need colin well the classic model is microsoft ignoring dc until yes, they got right. sued by the department of justice yeah, yeah. and now they're some of our favorite people <laughs> well of yeah. course but that had to be a unique model for these guys for verge to take on given that reluctance to engage in the policy yeah and right? we i mean uh one of the things that we would do is murder boards for them if they had to come in and mm-hmm. testify that was very new and it was interesting is the the engineers loved the murder boards because they like being prepared sure. and they did not like the idea they that they get from a to b yeah so they they were like i need to understand anything that is on you know that what could be possibly asked and we would bring our consultants in and they would actually act out some of the you know the, the the members and so they would they would start doing the accents and it you know and it really was like these guys would be like this is crazy and then they would go in front of them to testify and they're like wow that was actually really effective i wasn't well, that one guy was like nutty with his texas accent i was kind of ready for it <laughs> so it sounds like what you would do with a, a nominee yes. to go through the the confirmation yeah, process just get them prepared yeah. i mean people need to be in, in all things the one thing i've learned about washington is you know the more you prepare the easier life is isn't that the truth and it, i have a, a former boss who was a navy admiral who used to always say you have to plan but even the best battle plan falls apart after the first shot I, you, you know what i i live by having a plan and a plan can always change exactly right okay as i alluded to at the outset you've had a, a lengthy career and very varied career which i think is the key to success in this town because you go somewhere and you build a tool set you expand your network you great you, you get some new skills you never thought you could tackle and then you find something that's a good fit for those skills but going all the way back to the start was your first gig in town through presidential campaign politics yes i worked on uh, george hurt walker bush bush senior's campaign i arrived june 1st 1987 walked in the door and a guy named brian rell stared at me and said what are you looking for Brian Rell's now a chief of staff, or a chief, as I like to be called, um, on the the Hill for a member, and it's just we're still friends. At Bo Bryant, I ran into the other day. I mean, I, I, people from 1987, but I'm I'm somebody who collects people. Yeah. I I don't let my yeah. friends get dropped. So we worked on the campaign. Uh, you know, I moved from there. Eventually, I was in the finance division. Moved from the finance division to the field division, and then I was did not know because I was still in college. I was I finished here at American University that that campaigns meant jobs i had no concept of that so i came in the day after the campaign and everybody was fighting over the typewriters 
or the word processors actually, and they had this like plum book, and I didn't, you know, I kind of had it took me a minute to yeah. figure out what so was going on. Explain to our listeners what a plum book is. So the plum book is the book of Schedule C political jobs that are available in the agencies for the it's it's the booty, it's the stuff that you get to do when your guy wins or your woman wins, yeah, and literally so literally the plum assignment. Yes, exactly. Um, so I interviewed in several different locations. I interviewed the White House, the Treasury Department, and I interviewed the Department of Commerce, which was. Sorry, Department of Transportation, um, which everybody was kind of surprised, but I met Sam Skinner, and he was such a great guy. And I was like, I want to go work for him. So for two years, I went to go work for the what he was eventually dubbed as the Master of Disaster. We were doing earthquakes and Valdez and uh, hurricanes. And he was, to this day, he was probably the best boss, best person ever to be your first boss. We just got along famously. And the the whole Chicago mafia that he brought to town and I are still very good friends. And what did you do there? I, so I did advance. Okay. So it was um, there were two of us. Now they have these huge advance teams. At the time, it was me and another colleague that would just hopscotch around the country, being a day ahead of his schedule, and then walking him through whatever was going on that day. One of the things I did was we were the first Secretary of Transportation to visit then all three of the major uh, auto companies on one day. So it was then Chrysler, GM, and Ford. And they had never collaborated with that. Um, and the funny thing is we were trying to, we did do a coordination with the Department of Energy for a panel discussion. And the Department of Energy said, three is too many, just pick two. And I was like, no, we can't pick two. We will be going to all three. Yeah. And at the time, Chrysler had just partnered with... Was it Fiat at that time? Yeah, it, was, it was like Ferrari. I mean, they had, they had like Lamborghinis. And it just, it, you know, and the GM people were mad because they were like, they don't get to show their super fancy cars. I'm like, oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, but then we put Skinner in one of them in rush hour traffic into... Detroit. He wasn't so happy about that. Um, <laughs> but Hopefully it, not driving. But you know what was great is he let me sit in at all the meetings and I found out I was a policy geek. Like oh, I, you know, okay. to sit in and I would listen to all this stuff and we would go up to Wall Street and I would sit in his meetings with Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan and, you know, all the things that Morgan Stanley back in the day. And um, I started to figure out, okay, this transportation thing's really important. And, you know, and mm-hmm. eventually a company called Amazon figured out it's really important too. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's transporting whatever it is in from A to B really is key. And so what's interesting is watching the internet kind of figure out that infrastructure like how to like lay that on top of the um the 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 logistics infrastructure and how you best route through that but it was it was a great first job i was very lucky that i went from there to the white house and worked in you got more exposure to the policy realm when you made that transition to the white house yes i worked in cabinet affairs um in every white house they use that position a little differently in ours we had certain we were tagged with certain agencies i had fema and which was fun because it was you know lots of lots of activity going on sure. with that, as well as I supported the um, the head of the office and what, we had these Friday reports that would go into the president and I actually introduced the concept of a modem to the agency so we didn't have to rekey everything we could actually modem it over and then we could edit it <laughs> everybody would do it except for the Department of Justice and the Pentagon it, which and this is would fine. have been the dial up with yep. the long screen yep. thirty it, seconds later you actually have, have a connection I, I got it there yeah. and so that was you know my contribution to that whole process it was a great experience i'm glad i got to do it really young in life i've never yeah. wanted to go back and be my boss as a lot of people want to do in this town right. kind of did exactly. it loved it know how it works and did that get you through the entire bush it administration did. almost the tail end i actually left a month early which my boss just re- recently apologized that he got mad at me because he's like we were having so much fun i didn't want you to leave but i was like i'm eventually gonna need a new job dude yeah so i went up and became a legislative director for gary franks um who was the first black republican since reconstruction and right. we sat on energy and commerce during healthcare, tobacco wars uh the energy uh wheeling stuff I and mean, we, mm-hmm. we had tons of stuff it was during Dingle, which was fantastic to watch, you know, Chairman Dingle work and Chairman Waxman. I learned a ton while I was there. So becoming a legislative director is a huge leap in responsibility. 
But did you view that as somewhat of a lateral move going from the White House to the House of Representatives? No, I, I figured, okay. um, you know, I mean, I was lucky to get to start at such a great position in an administration. It was, I feel like I got a graduate degree. I mean, I got, I went there. Uh, that's what I've always said about working yeah. in this town, particularly Capitol Hill. It is yep. the best graduate you school are, in the country. You're steeped every day. I would park my car, go check in the office, and then I basically sat in the back of the Energy and Commerce Committee all day long and would come back at five o'clock and then deal with whatever was going on in the office. I mean, I, luckily I had an LC that was in legislative correspondent that was handling the mail and my issues. And then I managed the office as well because um, the way that was our office was structured. So I had, you know, I had great staff. Um, we all, we were, you know, we were an interesting crowd. We didn't all get along, but we worked around that. And um, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Well, it's tough. I mean, that's an interesting dynamic we've not talked about on this podcast yet, but when you are in a congressional office, particularly on the house side, you are in everybody's business. But I mean, you're right on top of each right other. On, right. Exactly. And yep. so you either get along or you know which buttons to push and not to push. Right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But that would have put you there in the, in the energy and commerce world as the Telecom Act was yep. ginning yep. up and yep. the, the many we iterations. Did the precursor to the 96 Act. Yeah. I was not there for the tail end of that. But, yeah, that was during the yeah. whole marquee. You know, that was, that was good. Yeah. And so did you get some exposure to your later life? Yeah, that, that as well as um, the first bill to be overturned by Congress um, from a presidential uh, it was the Cable Act, right. um, so that was sort of interesting. And so learning all that, Jim May, th- you know, yeah. if NAB was my office all the time. I mean, there's just I learned a lot, and I just really decided. Like somebody told me very early on that these guys, meaning the lobbyists, their job is to teach you things, not just you know come in and persuade you. And so I just asked a million questions, and and you know it was a good yin and yang relationship. They knew they could come in, I would explain things to them, and if we could, if it was. It, good for us, we would probably support them. If it didn't make sense, we wouldn't. Yeah, and that, you know, oftentimes that's where that bad rap about lobbyists comes from. It's that access and that that one-on-one relationship with a policymaker. But you've just touched on a key point. I mean, you are as you're an LD for a, a member of Congress, you have to keep track of countless number of issues, and you have people pounding on you constantly to get something done. Most particularly the boss. But you don't. There's no way any one person can have the bandwidth to get up to speed on all the issues that come through a congressional committee, particularly one as large as energy and commerce. Did that help translate into how you've approached your role as an advocate and now as a consultant? Yeah, you have to understand that your job is. They have a million things that are touching them on a daily basis, and most people on the Hill are extremely smart and competent but they're not focused on what you are focused on so your job as an advocate or an informer is to come in and explain why it's important why they should be working with you on it and sometimes i'll say we may be ahead of the power curve i wanted to get here so you have a familiarity with it and when it's time to you know do something you will be much faster to take the uptake and then my job is to keep you informed as to how this is going right and for every position that is you are presented with there's always a counter position, right? Right. Yeah. And it's always important to be able to explain that to the other side and say, exactly. you know, this is this is what the other side is going to say. Here's why we differ. Well, and to your boss. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Okay, so you did three years with Congressman Franks, but one thing we haven't touched on, Dish, yet is that you went to a think tank. I did go to a think tank, yeah. yeah. Tell, tell me, so you were Citizens for Sound Economy. I was. What was your role there? I was the head of government relations. We were doing the ex- next level of healthcare, really doing the advocacy work on behalf of, um, it was a free market think tank that was really big on Austrian economics, Lysander Spooner. So um, it was, <laughs> but the idea was that, you know, that, 
capitalism matters, and we needed to really be thinking about that. One thing I learned um, with our friend uh, Craig Purser is, you know, I was always like trying to do stuff on the budget, and he'd say, Shane, there's no, there's no, we can't raise any money from donors to do a project. And since we were a free market think tank, yeah. you had to be able to raise money to be able to support your cause. Right. And so he was like, if you can get money in that would say that the budget's important, then I will help you get a team together to do it. And now that we sit with a $3 trillion a year, you know, budget deficit, I I wish I had kept that passion, but at the same time, I realized nobody wanted to do that. This was during Kasich. Oh, yeah. When Chairman Kasich was there, and we just couldn't move the needle on it, and so we moved on to other things. So we did a lot of work on telecom, healthcare, um, again, a lot of stuff in the uh, utility. They were changing the rules about how you manage that, so we spent some time there. Tobacco wars were going on at that time. We had a point of view about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was fun. It was a good group. I actually just had lunch with the um, my colleague who did healthcare with me at the time and is now over at Cato. So he still stayed in the think tank space, and I'm back in it. And how did you all at CSE measure your success? What were your outcome models for um, what you were trying to accomplish? A lot of it was, so sometimes we actually had a scorecard, which several other think tanks still do. And it became a big deal to get your issue on the CSE scorecard. People would actually come lobby me because I ran the scorecard as okay. to, you know, could you, because that meant that people would look at the votes. So there's a, a whole series, and I don't know if they still do it, where, you know, there's like, Different com- yeah. different trade associations to do the ratings. Right. Um, well, this is a big tactic still at AFL-CIO. Yes. Right. So it's like kind of the it was the counterbalance, the counterweight to that Got to it. say if you care about economics and you care about you know where your tax dollars going, this is the group that's weighing through that. And we would explain why we cared. And so members' offices used to call me ahead of a vote and say, "Is this going to be on the scorecard?" And then they would really think about that before they would vote uh, either for or against something, knowing that we were going to score how they voted. Okay, so with the scorecard model, you would identify key votes. Yes. And make them important to CSE. And then you would track how members voted on Yes. Right. And so then what would happen with the, the scorecard then? Would your... your Sponsors, your contributors, your donors. We shared Look it. at that. Yep, we shared okay. it publicly with everybody. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was, it was a media hook as well. At the end of a uh, congressional session, we would um, announce where people came in on this, um, and then, of course, like every good uh, group, we had some statuette that I would go hand to the members yeah. that did well. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, I've seen shelves of those statuettes. Yes. NFIB comes to mind. Lots, lots. <laughs> NFIB of those. is right. the yes, the uh, guardian of small business. <laughs> right. Exactly. Now, I'd like to ask you a bit more about your trade association days as well, because obviously we started this podcast series with Craig Purser, the CEO and president of one of the more well-known trade associations in town, but the Stilled Spirits Council is obviously well-known and very active in political realms, but how did you make that transition from a think tank to a trade association where all of a sudden you, it seems like you're, like most trade associations, you have to sometimes play to the lowest common denominator. Right. What are the issues that most of your members can agree on, and then you go advocate that Well, position? how I came to their attention, actually, when I was at CSE is that they um, – Discus kept coming to us saying, we want help because we want to be able to advertise on, this is going to sound hysterical now, broadcasting. They wanted to get on broadcast television. And I kept saying, why don't you guys care about broadcast television? Why don't you just go get on cable? It's cheaper. You can very much target your audience. And to them, it was a badge of honor. They wanted to be like beer and wine who could Mm -hmm. advertise on what was considered slightly after hours. You know, there was no hard, fast rule, but there was sort of a litmus test for that. And then... 
distilled spirits, some people call it liquor, uh, you know, distilled spirits, uh, did not advertise. And they really wanted to do it. And I just kept pushing back saying, I think you guys are, you're, you're hitting a bar that doesn't make any sense. And I made an, I kind of rattled their cage enough that they finally asked me to come over and interview and think about coming over, which I did. And just a combination of things. I showed up wanting to take one job and then a couple of people left and I ended up with a bigger job than I'd started with and really worked with the companies. And I knew that the company people really well. And that helped yeah. a lot. The um, head of my government relations committee is now actually the CEO of uh, Discus, Chris Swanger. So, you know, it was, um, it was a great group. We were very tight knit. There were about five of us in town and a couple people who would fly in. So we would buy tables to all the right political functions and charity events. Mm -hmm. And we just, as a, uh, as an industry, we worked very well together, but as a trade association, your challenge is, um, one particular group, there was international distillers and vintners and there was, or sorry, um, Hubeline. They, they got together and they became the largest beverage alcohol company in the world now, which is Diageo. Then the challenge became everything was like Diageo would look at them from the, the kind of the lens of, am I giving my competitors a leg up? And if that's the case, we're going to vote no on this, unless it's really a good of the cause. Mm-hmm. And so there was a transition for what they were focusing on, and it became very hard for the Jim Beam, um, you know, Jack Daniels, which is Brown Foreman, Bacardi. Uh, at the same time, Bacardi went from being a pure play rum company owned by a family to they started bringing in some other things in their portfolio. Right. So it was a fascinating time to be there. Trade was huge. Um, there were other companies that decided to open offices during that. Uh, but again, like you, you pointed out, at trade associations, are tricky because you go to what everybody can agree on. It's kind of consensus or what the final vote is on. So you're not always going to the highest watermark. You're going to the watermark people can agree on. Exactly. So what did you start as at Discus? Um, I was the uh, vice president for just the Republican side, but then I didn't, uh, the senior vice president ahead of me uh, left literally the day I started. Oh, you're kidding. It was fascinating. And um, so I took care of all government relations and then uh we brought matt stanton over he had been working with um the another side of the industry on um advocacy for mothers against drunk driving and so he came over as my colleague on the democratic side and matt and i basically ran all government relations for several years there that's great did you how did you divide up the responsibilities then um just based on network pretty much Yeah. yeah well that's key yeah Shane, as we head towards uh, concluding this episode, I'd love to ask you, what kind of advice would you give some young individual who's either coming to town to start a career because they have a vague interest in politics, or somebody who's been here for a while and is looking to move on and do something a little different? So I'm going to kind of answer a different question. One of the things Go that right I ahead. tell everybody when they come to town is people in this town, we, have, we are just littered with experts on things, and yes. they love to talk about what they do in themselves go out of your way to talk to them ask questions you know ask somebody like Vint Cerf has been the most accessible people and he is you know the guy DARPA he created HTTP I mean it's he's cool uh, there was an intern that I helped go through a couple different career changes who just left MIT and is now working for a cybersecurity company up in uh Um, Montreal and she gave me her list of people that she really wanted to get to know which to her was like this starstruck I'll never meet these people and I looked at it I said I'm I'm having dinner with two of them tonight do you want to come with us and you know I said these people are very accessible sometimes you just need that link so I always say to people I might not know them but I know somebody who knows them and I don't know many people who won't take the time especially for a younger staffer or an intern to 
coffee, you know, offer to buy him coffee and say, just, you know, can I get on your list? The persistent ones, I still talk to you all the time. Yeah. And so that would be the, you. I think you get here and you pretty much figure out you like this or you don't. I say I'm a DC mutant. I've thought about changing jobs. I've looked at jobs in other cities and I'm like, you know what? I love my policy junk. Yeah. I just love it. Well, Shane, it's been a pleasure having you on Any Proof Politics. It's great catching up with you. Thank you for being one of our guest spurts. And that's about all the time we have for today. So remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. (laughs) Have a glass. Exactly. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Still don't know what's in this drink. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel.